This episode of The New Story Is is brought to you by Writing the Personal, a three-week writing class hosted by me, Dave Rosillo, and The New Story Company. Join me for an unconventional and invigorating crash course into the art of personal narrative storytelling starting this June 7th. Personal narrative writing is considered to be one of the most in-demand and most popular forms of creative nonfiction writing today, and it's one that I've really come to love over my 13-plus years of publishing my writing on the internet. This June, you'll join me and a small creative cohort as we explore this art form for ourselves, develop our unique voices, build confidence as writers, and source inspiration from contemporary writers who are reinventing the story of what writing means in the modern day. Spaces are limited, so head on over to thenewstory.is slash WTP to register now. That's thenewstory.is slash WTP. Hello and welcome to The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. I am the founder of The New Story Company and the host of this podcast. The New Story Is exists to explore the stories and narratives that shape our time. The big collective stories that impact large swaths of society and people in it, as well as the individual interpersonal stories through which we understand and relate to one another. On today's episode, the recent best of the podcast. Relive two of our recent interviews with authors Kat Velos and Caroline Duner, which have been popular with our listeners over recent weeks. Everyone's favorite expletive, the F-word, features prominently in these interviews on topics like the importance of caring when you're already exhausted, and the idea of radical permission to rest. First, you'll hear an excerpt from my interview with Kat Velos. Kat is the author of two books. One is called We Should Get Together, The Secret to Cultivating Better Friendships, and the other is called Connected from Afar, A Guide for Staying Close When You're Far Away. I asked Kat to join me on The New Story Is to tell me why she's been feeling tired and frustrated of hearing people on social media tell this one story in particular. That story goes a little like this. I'm out of fucks to give, or... I have no more fucks left to give. You might have heard it, you might have said it yourself. Kat says that this declaration started out as a good-humored way to jest and say, oh, I'm just so over this, I I can't care about it anymore. But today, Kat says in particular, the story behind this saying now reeks of a certain level of toxic individuality. If you enjoy what you hear, go back and listen to the full episode, I think you'll really like it. Without further ado, here's my interview with Kat Fellows. The saying, you know, it's been you know, going on years now that people are saying this more and more and more. And at first it was like really funny and really cute, but I'm really tired of it. And the reason that it's come to great on me these days is that it kind of glorifies being someone who doesn't care um, as if it's not admirable to care. And as someone who spends a lot of my time, as you mentioned, you know, in the work that I do, thinking about and caring about outcomes for human beings and caring about how they're connecting and caring about what the impact is on our society when people lack connection in their lives and meaningful friendships and meaningful community, you know, it's really like not caring is at 180 degrees opposite from the point of my work and the point of this thing that I value so highly. And it concerns me um, that, you know, it's one thing to just like be like, oh, yeah, I don't care about that. And, you know, move on to the next topic. But what I see happening is almost this like glorification of not caring as if like 
people who like don't give a fuck are like badass and cool and like admirable in a way that is like this almost like toxic individualism. It's like, I'm only here for myself. I don't care about anybody else. I don't care about, you know, other uh, outcomes or other people or other situations. I give no fuck about anyone. I got to look out for myself. And this sort of dog eat dog, like I I really think of it as like a toxic individualism that says Mm -hmm. like, I only care about myself. Mm -hmm. And what concerns me about that is like, what happens to society if everybody takes on that attitude? Yeah. I love how you phrase it as a toxic individualism, because on the one hand, and I can relate to what you're saying. I remember when I first started to hear this phrase floating around like social media, probably like 10 years ago or so, um, when, when social media still felt like a relatively positive (laughs) and connected place, we'll get around (laughs) to that. But I remember some friends and like bloggers that I was connected with being like, I'm out of fucks to give and thinking like, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard because like, what is a fuck to give anyway? But it just made sense. And over the years though, and and you note this in your newsletter, what you wrote saying that this has kind of become this, uh, like pseudo badge of honor. Like I'm too cool to give a fuck anymore. And you, and you paint this picture with words of like somebody walking away from like a burning building, like in slow motion, like it's an action movie. Like Mm -hmm. they just, they, you know, they're just burning everything down and they don't give a shit. And Mm -hmm. I think we contrast that feeling of, uh, walking away from, things that are falling down or are falling apart and feeling a sense of pride in it. Uh, I wonder what that story means. Like, what is the real story there? Do you think, I know you mentioned toxic individualism and I totally agree. I'd love to like parse that apart with you, but do you feel like there's like some other like sense of, um, disassociation or like desperation that is kind of like the hidden story beneath this, this proclamation of not caring? Like, what do you think about the origins or the roots of what somebody is saying when they kind of let it slip? Like, I'm out of fucks to give. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's a both. And so on, Mm -hmm. on the one hand, you know, as you described like the disassociation, there is a part like there's been studies that show that over the last few decades, even empathy in American culture has been on the decline. And, and they study this with particularly young people, uh, like co- mm. high school and college age students. Um, and over time, people are caring less. And one of the, you know, uh, theorized causes for this is that social media culture, you know, online comment culture where people are really, really cruel to each other often, um, ends up kind of infusing people's lives with like, Oh, like it's okay to trash other people. And there's really no consequence for that. It's, it's okay to like not care if you hurt somebody, uh, you know, online. Cause that's not quite a quote unquote real, even though it is very real. <laughs> um, and there's no consequence. And so that sort of feeds this idea that you can say and do whatever you want and you can just log off. You can shut your computer. You can walk away after that and like not actually have to experience the consequence of what happened to the person on the other side. And then there's also when I think of like, okay, if I put myself in the shoes of someone who's like, you know what? I don't give a fuck anymore. I just have no more fucks to give. I'm like, well, what gets someone to that place? Like what else could be at play here? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the word desperation, And I think about that too, because we live in a world that is increasingly difficult. So 
from the rising cost of everything from healthcare to schooling, feeling politically disengaged or even horrified at things that so-called political leaders are doing, um, burnout, you know, living through the pandemic. It is exhausting to also live right now. And I think, okay, well, if people are really, really tired, they're really burned out, then sure, they might feel like they don't have the energy to care. And that's completely understandable, right? It's like Mm -hmm. they're just focused on trying to stay alive. And when we have a, a society that lives too long in survival mode, rather than like, say, thriving mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might happen. People might be feeling so worn down and burnout that they're like, I'm too exhausted to actually uh, get more involved to change the outcomes of, of the world around me that I see happening. But we have to find a balance with completely checking out and not caring and just like shutting our eyes and turning our back on all of that because it does affect us even if we try to ignore it. Um, and like overdoing it with being like, now everybody has to care like 110% every day. Like that's also mm. not the answer because that's a different path to burnout. And so I really think it, it takes some intention. It takes some um, kind of finding that middle path, but also acknowledging that it's not cool to not care. When I was thinking about this coming up to our conversation today, I was thinking about, you know, who are the people who care? Who are the people who get things done? And either positive or negative, for good or evil, the people who care about the outcome are the ones who take action and get shit done, whether Mm. their actions are beautiful or horrifying. Mm. You can think about, like, you can have a goal and it can be to heal society or to start a war. But if you care about that goal and you want to make it happen, you're going to do it. And we're seeing that right now, unfortunately, with the dreadful invasion of the Ukraine from Russia. And it's like, he cares about the outcome. In yeah. a way that many of us are now being called to care about the outcome, right. you know, but if we just say, I don't give a fuck, what does that mean for the entire world? What does that mean for all of us? If we just be like, I don't give a fuck about that. Yeah. So it sounds, Kat, to, to summarize a bit of, of your point of view here, it sounds like on the one hand, there are like environment, there are a lot of environmental conditions such as the nature of the internet and social media and how that's so entwined with culture more or less the world over, at least in, you know, like industrialized nations, um, kind of like warping how we all relate to self-expression and, um, and caring. And, and, and that's kind of having an effect. It seems like the research shows on empathy, especially in young people, which I find really alarming because I feel like maybe like a overgeneralization, but I feel like young people and young adults are historically the ones who we think care the most and have mm-hmm. the most caring and advocacy and they're willing to risk the most. And, you know, when they're, when they're uh, either being, um, I know historically young people aren't the most active voters, but being politically engaged and, and being the boots on the ground in terms of advocacy and things. So that's kind of a scary thought, but it also sounds like, um, so in, there's the environmental side of things, so to speak, but also the nature of what's been going on in the world, causing so much like burnout and exhaustion and emotional fatigue, as mm-hmm. well as like, let's say like, you know, manipulation and gaslighting on certain levels of, um, you know, the whole post-truth era in which we're living and like, Mm. what is real, what isn't like, that's exhausting too. Um, but what I'm hearing you say is that caring is not all necessarily good, but not having it 
has consequences. And it sounds like for you, um, and, and as a as a UX designer, especially where like everything you do is really about trying to understand outcomes and also trying to encourage the right outcomes for people, for users of different programs and services, that caring is absolutely essential if you want anything to happen or want anything to change. And you started to mention about why caring matters. Um, why to you is is caring so important? Have, has, has caring always felt like a part of you on a personal level or soul level or gut level? Um, or is it something that you came to maybe learn the importance of over time based on like your life and, and your experiences? Hmm. When I think about, I, I've always been a sensitive person. Like even when I was a kid, like adults around me would be like, you're too sensitive. Like, why are you crying? (laughs) And I'm like, because I have feelings and emotions. (laughs) Um, So I would, I think ever since my entire life, uh, early childhood, I've been a really sensitive person and who feels things really deeply. Um, And I don't know if that means I can walk around being like, I'm a caring person. I think I'm a caring person. I try to be a caring person. But I think that being someone who feels things very sensitively overlaps with the amount that I care when I see pain, when I see beauty, when I see, you know, all of these things happening in the world around us. And so, yeah, I think that's something that's always been a part of who I am and and likely plays into why I chose to do the work that I'm doing right now, you know, since writing, we should get together and really taking the full focus of my work attention in the world into how can we help people live more healthy, connected lives with healthy friendship and community, which is one of the greatest sources of physical health, emotional health, and mental health. And think about how much that means to me. You know, I I loved the work that I did as a UX designer as well, but this is like a hundred X (laughs) more meaningful to me in terms Mm. of like what it means if we are successful at this goal, like what it means for society, what it means for humanity. You know, I I love the work I did before. And and you mentioned, you know, that when you're a UX designer, you have to care about the outcome. For our listeners who don't know what UX design is, could you, and like, I think I know what it is (laughs) because I've been on the internet for, for my whole life, but can you give us a really simplified understanding of what user experience or UX design is and what a UX designer does? Yeah. So the shortest, simplest answer I usually give to this question is a person who is a UX designer, user experience designer, their ultimate goal is to ensure that the experience is user-friendly. Most people understand what it's like to use an app or a website that's user-friendly. And we definitely know what it's like when it's not user-friendly. It, right. con- it's confusing. It makes you angry. You want to throw your phone across the room because you're like, I don't understand what's happening. Like, why isn't the button working? Like, you know, things like that. We know what it's like when the web works uh, badly mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or an app works, you know, in a confusing way. And so a user experience designer is to ensure that it works well and that it is easy to understand and that you can accomplish the task you came to do without any frustration. Mm -hmm. And so how is UX design different than say like visual design? I I believe that there are obviously visual elements in UX design, but really Mm -hmm. I feel like it's like, it's uh, the design aspect is almost scientific. Like you're trying to create an experience that's efficient. And um, I think also probably plays into like psychology and how people can relate to like an interface, like on a screen. Could you tell me a little (laughs) bit about that? 
Yeah, user experience design and user experience research have much more involvement in the questions of, you mentioned like psychology, also behavioral economics, like understanding what are the non um, visual design elements that are at play when someone is trying to accomplish this task. You know, mm. what is the mindset that they're in? What is the urgency of the situation? How do our brains process information in what kinds of order for something to be simple, easy to understand and efficient? And what is the uh, simplest path towards getting them to their goal as, as positively and successfully as possible? And so, yeah, a lot of that comes down to like when I was doing a lot of user research interviews, it's really trying to understand like what is the context that this person is in? What are all the factors at play? And taking all of that into consideration, what would be an ideal set of recommendations for how a thing should be designed? Sometimes that has to do with what it looks like, but more likely it has to do with what it works like because a lot of things look beautiful and are very confusing to use and you can't understand them. Um, And some things are not that visually beautiful, but they are highly functional, you know, like Craigslist, for example, I wouldn't think anyone would call that a beautiful website, but it is so functional that they haven't changed the design for like over a decade, you know? All right. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Um, So Yeah. It, so it sounds like you you can't really be a UX designer and not care about outcomes. Like the work is caring, but it's not. It, and it's like a deeper level of um, understanding and awareness that seems required because, like you said, there's so many different subtle forces, factors, influences in play. It's not just like having somebody click the button. Um, yeah. It also plays into what their expectations are. So it sounds like you really have to really care about outcomes yes. to be a successful UX designer. I guess you yeah, can it would be not impossible care and be a terrible not <laughs> Yeah, it, yeah I, I was going to say it's impossible not to, but I guess it's possible to do it that way and not care, but you would be terrible at it. And to have a very, very short very... career. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's, uh, it's, it's so fascinating because it, these are things that, you know, when we're on the user side, speaking, you know, on behalf of our, our listeners, something we can really take for granted, like you said, Kat, except when things don't work. But it really strikes me that uh, you, you seem to have found this, this first career path in UX design that really highlighted a lot of these core attributes and personality traits. And, you know, you mentioned always being a sensitive kid. Um, what did UX design teach you about caring about outcomes, but not just in the sense of UX design, in the world around you. Yeah. I mean, one thing is that, you know, very often for a lot of the startups and apps and platforms from small ones to the biggest ones that everybody knows the names of, um, the, the experience of a designer or user experience designer who may be trying to create certain outcomes for users, uh, perhaps the best possible outcome for users, sometimes this is at odds with what the business owners want, right? And Mm. unfortunately, what that has led to is a rather disappointing experience where the outcomes that are being created are the ones that would please the company's shareholders at the expense of what is the best outcome for human beings. Mm. And I will say... 
I did not work on social networking apps, but we see this a lot in the way that social networking apps function in, in people's lives. And one of the ways that this came up when I was doing my research around friendship is it was not uncommon for someone, you know, to say that they have, you know, hundreds of friends, quote unquote, friends on social media, uh, you know, adding up together, you know, how all the different social media apps somebody might be on. Yeah. Like, yeah, I have hundreds of friends, you know, on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever. But when I want someone to hang out with them, I'm lonely. I don't have anyone to call. I don't have anyone to hang out with. And so there's a disconnect between what it means to be connected digitally or virtually and what Mm -hmm. it means to be connected emotionally, psychologically, uh, tangibly in our lives. And so that question, uh, was one that intrigued me and certainly fed into why I decided to write, we should get together and what led this curiosity that's now years long around how do adults who have very busy, very complicated lives form and maintain healthy friendships in a world with so many competing demands and distractions. I love that subject. I love that question. So I think we should definitely follow that into discussing We Should Get Together, um, which is a book, as you mentioned, Kat, about connection and bringing people together and cultivating platonic friendships as adults, but meaningful um, lasting friendships. Uh, Why is it so tough for us as adults to make friends? Well, that's kind of, uh, that's one half of the book. (laughs) Um, And it's that there's many, many reasons why it's so tough to make friends. You know, we have, uh, there's, and I delve into all of these in different sections, you know, so one of the big factors uh, is what I call our hypermobile culture. Um, And this was definitely, I think, more true before the pandemic. And I wonder what it will look like in the years as the pandemic kind of hopefully comes to a decrescendo. Um, mm. But we live in a world where people move their physical presence uh, at a much faster rate than has ever happened before. So moving in and out of cities and states and countries and changing jobs and moving is one of the number one factors that adults name is the reason why their friendships falter or wither over mm. time is that they or their friends have moved and it's harder to maintain those friendships from a distance. Another cause is busyness. People feeling like they're too busy to have friends or they want to see their friends, but they're like, Oh my gosh, I don't have any time. Uh, Another factor has to do with the changes that occur to uh, responsibilities in adulthood, particularly around the development of a primary relationship, a romantic relationship or becoming a parent. And so it doesn't mean that those things are bad. It just means that the amount of time that it takes to invest in a uh, really like big time adult relationship uh, takes a lot of time and having a newborn or raising kids takes a lot of time. And so the attention you might've had for like going drinking at the bar with your friends and playing pool every Friday night or whatever, it kind of evaporates when you have these other competing demands. And then the last uh, big cause that I write about in the book has to do with uh, kind of our declining capacity to develop intimacy. So many people Mm. spoke to me about the fact that they, you know, have all these quote unquote friends, but if they were in a time of need, they would not really know who to call. And Mm. they felt uncomfortable even expressing needing help, which is one of the markers of what we do when we have an intimate, trusting relationship, Um, as well as like people saying they kind of don't know how to get beyond the surface. So maybe they hang out with their friends, but they, um, 
they just chit chat, they make small talk, but they don't actually get to the deeper, like heart based conversations and they, and they don't really know how to make that happen. Yeah. Wow. That, that's pretty heartbreaking to, to hear that. Um, as you mentioned, Kat, that, uh, people report a declining capacity um, to develop intimacy despite these like panging, pangs and longings that are not only so fundamentally human, mm-hmm. but also as loneliness, this, you know, uh, pandemic of loneliness kind of wraps the world over mm-hmm. uh, and gets worse and worse, especially like, you know, in the United States where I know you've, you've centered a lot of your research, but also in other, other countries and yes. societies that loneliness is a, is a real big problem. We understand more and more that there are tremendous health implications for loneliness, feeling lonely. Uh, in your book, you write that the former surgeon general uh, equated feeling lonely to having the stress impact as equivalent to smoking mm-hmm. 15 cigarettes, uh, mm-hmm. which I found um, startling to say the least. Yeah. And it's really, it it can have such a like physical effect when we lack these emotional connections. Um, there's just a whole host of them and it's really a a public health issue when there Mm -hmm. is a epidemic of loneliness that's pervasive in this, in the society. And I want to just say for any listeners who are like, Oh my God, I would never read this book. It sounds really sad. Um, (laughs) I also talk about solutions to each of these things and research solutions and things that you can try that are small and medium and large for things that you can do. If you're like, Oh, I have that issue. Like, what should I do about it? Like there's many, many things to do. Many of them are quite fun um, that you can do to help turn that around. It's not just talking about the problems. I'm also like extremely solution focused because I care about the outcome. Absolutely. And that's a great (laughs) transition there because I I know one of the things that you recommend Kat, which, which speaks to my heart as a writer is the art of letter writing. Um, and, and advising people um, who are either cultivating friendships or maintaining friendships to sit down and write a letter, which feels on some levels very antiquated or old fashioned, but uh, is is on the one hand, a really pretty special, like emotional process for an individual writing a letter, meaning it can really connect you to yourself. And on the other hand, like what a great gesture and symbol of caring um, to, to write and send a letter to someone that we uh, care about or consider a friend. What other um, tools and tactics do you like? With you know, maybe just mentioning one more because because obviously our listeners will have to get your book and and indulge in in all of the ones that you write about. But what's one more uh, tactic or or tool that you've really come to enjoy about turning caring into like outreach or an expression of caring to somebody uh, close to us? Mm. Yeah. As a writer, obviously I love writing. So uh, the the letters and cards I think are just delightful. Uh, And the other thing that uh, another aspect of this that some, someone can try that I've certainly pushed myself to try more of um, is one of the, you know, I don't know if you've heard of the five love languages. Oh yeah, absolutely. So one of, so one of them is words of affirmation that goes really good with writing. And one of them that was never really high on my list was gifts. And Mm. During the pandemic, I in, did much more intentionally explored the question of like, what would it look like to show my caring through gifting? And one of the reasons I don't really love, like why gifts probably isn't really high on my list of love languages is because I don't like a lot of materialism and consumerism and waste. And I, and I worry about like adding more um, garbage to the world. <laughs> a lot of things just get thrown away, like from mm-hmm. even like a plastic 
bow that you have to then throw in the trash, right? So I, I've never really liked gifts, but I kind of explored like what would it look like to uh, create gifts that are uh, maybe more handmade, possibly biodegradable, you know, mm-hmm. like but still are a, a demonstration of the care, a demonstration of the love. Um, and one of the ways I've explore this is through food. Um, so for example, now we're um, talking. Oh yeah. A gift <laughs> of food is like actually the most perfect gift that could be given in my book. Um, I love it. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the ways I've, I've done this a little bit with neighbors during the pandemic is like trading little small gifts over the fence. So like mm. they grow, they grow a lot of food in their garden. So sometimes they'll throw over like tomatoes or lemons and like, I would like bake some bread or something and like give them some bread or like give them some cookies. And so it's like this really sweet gift exchange of uh, really small tokens of, of food, but it's an expression of saying like, I care about you. I have something good here and I want to share it with you. Um, and so that's one, one very small example, but I think it's meaningful to think about like, what is it that you have to share? What might uh, please or delight the other person? And that is uh, easy to do. Like, don't, don't spend too much time or money or stressing yourself out. Like, oh, I need to do a perfect gift. It's like a small gesture actually can carry a lot of meaning and just lets you know, like somebody was thinking about you. I love that. Coming from uh, a predominantly Italian family, like food is <laughs> food is its own love language. I think it yes. like transcends gifts. It's like it's everything uh, in my family. And I'd, I'd love the, you know, cooking for someone, baking for someone, offering something that is like nourishing and, and delicious. Like how, how lovely to extend caring through something that, I mean, historically, culturally has always brought people together and been an expression of caring and community. Um there's something that uh, comes to mind, Kat, which I was referencing. You're, you're no stranger to the TEDx stage. You've done a lot of speaking. And in your, your TEDx speech, um, you're speaking about your book and you're speaking about connection and platonic friendships. And you said this, this line that really caught my attention. And that line was, most people are waiting to be invited. Yeah. So thinking about our isolation, our loneliness, uh, how we struggle to and have this declining capacity to... Um, create intimacy or develop intimacy with others, and this notion that most people are waiting to be invited. I wonder if what you mean by that is that most people are passive about connecting and like waiting for someone else to do it for them, or is it that people are actually more open to our invitations and our gestures than we think? What has your experience been like? I think it's a bit of both. Yeah. Especially when we look at the research around loneliness and find that close to half of the population says that they feel regularly on a somewhat to regular basis, like somewhat frequently to regular frequency basis. Mm. And what that tells me is that you can walk down the street and like 50% of the people that you pass are feeling some degree of loneliness and wishing for greater connection, wishing for more of the type of connection that they crave. Uh, in the book, I, I coined a term called platonic longing, which is, you know, we know about unrequited love, right? When people want a relationship. Right. We also have this pervasive sense of longing for platonic connection. And so when I say like most people are waiting to be invited, that means that like if you are holding yourself back from extending an invitation because you're worried about rejection, which is a real fear. Many people have talked to me about they're afraid somebody will say no, they're afraid they'll be rejected. Mm-hmm. 
I encourage you to realize like you have better than 50, 50 coin toss odds that people are going to want to hear what you are inviting them to or wanting to connect with them about and really going to be so happy that you wanted to include them, that you wanted to connect with them. And so that like waiting to be invited is like, it's like this wishful, hoping, like wanting to feel, um, desired, like wanting to feel Mm. included, wanting to feel a sense of belonging. And that comes when we say like, Hey, do you want to eat lunch with me? You know, or, Hey, like, do you want to go for a walk and get a coffee one day? Or, Hey, do you want to, um, I'm going to start doing Sunday dinners. Do you want to come over? You don't have to even cook, just come eat with us. You know, uh, that's what I mean. It's like to hear a sentence like that, to hear an invitation, a question like that would light up like literally half the population who like want to feel more connected. And so, uh, I share that again as, as just a piece of motivation to know, like, even if somebody says no, there's a good chance the next person you ask is going to say yes. Thank you to Kat for joining us on The New Story Is. Up next, it's Caroline Duner. Caroline is a humorist and storyteller who tells us that she is tired as fuck of the pressures of self-help, diet culture, and trying to fix her, all of her supposed imperfections. Caroline is the author of two books. The first is The Fuck It Diet, Eating Should Be Easy, and Tired as Fuck, Burnout at the Hands of Diet, Self-Help, and Hustle Culture. What I realize is, you know, we all <laughs> we all can be tired in our own ways, and some people may be more tired than others. Some people may have more resilience than others and can go a lot longer and can handle a lot more. Um, but really being tired and being burnt out should not be a pissing contest because if you're tired and you're burnt out, you're tired and burnt out, right? It doesn't really matter whether someone else is more tired. We need to be able to take care of ourselves if we're going to, you know, keep going. But, um, what was really interesting for me is that at, first of all, at the time I did not use the word burnout. I didn't even realize that that's what was happening to me. All I knew is that I was really tired, (laughs) really, really tired. And I did not have the physical or emotional energy to keep doing what I was doing and to keep going at the rate I was going and to keep, um, kind of relating to myself and relating to my life the way that I had been up until that point. But I had always thought and believed that burnout was purely physical. Like, okay, you've been doing a lot. You've been doing too much. You've been overworking. You've been undersleeping. You're tired. You need to take, you know, three weeks on the beach and you'll come back and your burnout will be healed. What I didn't understand and what I experienced firsthand before I could even start to understand this was that there was so much that had, it, it had taken so long to get to this point. This wasn't like, Oh, this past year has been really hard. I've been just doing a lot. You know, I have been, I've been doing a lot, but it had been, it had been in the works for so, so long. And it was actually my emotional and my, and my mental life that had allowed me to get so run down. It's like I had a leak <laughs> that I, ha- or I had, and sometimes I explain it as like, I had these, these computer programs running in the background of my, of my brain that I didn't even realize were there. And it was the guilt. It was the expectations. It was the, the, the voice of 
telling me constantly, 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 you can't relax. And that was really, that's the core of it. Since I was a teenager and maybe even before then, honestly, I never, ever truly relaxed. I never believed that I was allowed to. There was always something else I felt that I should be doing. There was always some reason that I hadn't worked hard enough. And, you know, even if it's what I was realizing is that even when I took off, even when I took a week off or when, if I took a night off or if I said no to something because I didn't have the energy, it's not like I stayed at home and had a great time and relaxed and, and really recharged. I felt guilty about it the whole time. And that is a state that will not allow you to recharge that you will, you will, you will continue to deplete yourself. If you constantly are in that state of, Oh my God, what I should be doing something else. Something else should be happening. I I can't believe that I I took off tonight or I, I better make up for it tomorrow. Like all of that stuff really, really is able to bring you down. So it's, it's the mental and emotional pieces that I think are the, the real reasons that most people are burnt out. And that yeah, is something I, I hear that like compoundings. Oh yeah, yes. I'm sorry to cut yes. you off. I was just gonna say I feel like I hear no. this like compounding pressures to yes. to like be more, do more, don't let your guard down, and that's kind of like you mentioned the mental and emotional pressures um, that that sound like they just kind of like built up over time. And and in in your book, you talk about some of the pressures you were feeling even as a kid, right? When you were performing and singing for mm-hmm. for like great aunt so and so and grandma, you didn't want to let anybody right, down. Right. So um, a right. lot of a lot of great and anxiety inducing, uh, 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 stories and, and anecdotes that, that our readers, uh, our listeners will have to read. Um, so, so I, and I want to go, I want to go down one of two routes right now. Maybe you can help me, Caroline, cause I want to talk about burnout that is specifically associated with this pressure to constantly self-improve or become, like I mentioned mm. in your introduction, this, this best version of ourselves, because I feel like that's a big right. part of your book, but maybe we could start with talking about what you've been learning and observing about burnout specifically with regard to the pandemic, because as you mentioned, you, you had no idea that burnout was the, the phrase that described what you're experiencing. And I feel like it, it, the, in our lexicon burnout is, is being elevated. It's a conversation that's in like news headlines. Now, um, burnout is being attributed or, or one of the, uh, one of the factors believed to be influencing the great resignation, which is, you know, about 4 million people every month for the last, what, nine months or so, at least, uh, quitting their jobs. Um, there's the pandemic fatigue, you know, the pandemic itself, there's childcare uh, issues that all parents have been experiencing. The World Health Organization, I recently learned, I think in 2019, finally uh, termed burnout as a, a chronic stress disorder or, or a chronic stress, not a disease, but a chronic stress uh, issue that that they believe um, mm-hmm. is is putting like all workers worldwide at risk. So there's a lot of focus and emphasis on burnout. I'm curious about what, in light of your desire for, you know, as you said, the the permission for radical rest that you wanted to give yourself those two years and what you've been observing over the last couple of years, uh, what have you been learning about burnout uh, in addition to it being physical, uh, but, but also emotional and mental? Yeah. So using the, you know, the last two years of, of COVID as an example, 
not only have people, you know, been juggling more. So like think about working parents who were trying to juggle homeschool and work at the same time, somehow impossibly. Um, but you know, and then kids being sent home because of exposure and this. So there has been this extra level of actual physical exhaustion, right? But there's also been this nonstop sort of like existential anxiety that people have been experiencing on so many, you know, and so many, even people on both ends of, of the political spectrum have been stressed out of their minds with whatever they believe is going on. Right. And that is enough to put people into a state of complete overwhelm of not being able to deal. And one of the really interesting things that I learned along the way that kind of made me realize that what I was experiencing was burnout and not just being tired was learning that burnout actually manifests as not just being tired, but also symptoms of anxiety and depression. Like feeling detached or, you know, not being able to get excited about things or not being able to focus. Um, and you know, that's, that is what I was experiencing when I looked at my calendar and was like, I hate my life. I don't want to keep doing this. And I'm really, really tired. And I need to make some big, big, big changes. And that's what people are experiencing right now. They're like, I am not enjoying the life that I've been living. And it's, it's probably, there are probably a lot of things going on. People who were in the wrong jobs for themselves are, you know, realizing that life is too short. I don't want to be miserable. I can work at home and, you know, get a different job and, you know, not be so miserable day in and day out. And there are also people who are just like, I am, uh, something is not right. Like I am not, I'm not okay. And I don't want to do this anymore. And I need to make a big change. And I think, you know, obviously I don't think that the pressure that people have been under is good. It's not good for us. It's not good for our nervous system. It's not good for our bodies or our minds. It's not, it's not good. But if people can take that kind of like rock bottom experience and, and, and make a change and, and realize like, look, you know, I want to figure this out. There's, there's gotta be, life has got to be a little bit better than this. You know, I think that that is a good thing because it's making people kind of reevaluate what's important to them and, you know, have better boundaries and figure out, well, what job do I want to do? If I'm, if I'm going to resign from my job, you know, what, what would I rather be doing? So I think, I think it really makes sense that people are at that point, not just physically, but again, as we were saying, that the mental and emotional pressure that we've all been under. Yeah. It reminds me, Caroline, there was a phase of what I thought was like the end of the pandemic or like the start of the end of the pandemic in 2021, where I was reconnecting with people and catching up with like former clients and friends and family members. And I would ask them this this question of like, do you have, have you had a, a, sil uh, a pandemic silver lining? Meaning like, has mm -hmm. there been like some shred of anything good or positive that's come out of this, this shitty experience? Um, just out of curiosity, you know, and I, I had like some people say like, Oh, I finally quit smoking. And I had some people be like, no, there were none. Um, but, but what you, what you mentioned there, like the, the silver lining, I don't say that to be, uh, you know, pithy about it, but 
about there being some good to it. It, it does also remind me of a, a New York Times article that I read maybe like 10 years ago about um, the upside to depression, I think was the title or, or like the, the benefit of depression was the, the article. And, and the author was exploring why does depression exist? Um, is it an adaptive trait somehow, which is a pretty controversial thing to say, because you don't want to be like, you know, someone says that they're depressed or anxious or burned out. You don't want to say like, hey, congratulations, like you did it, like you're going to really get somewhere now. But I think it is worth exploring that if if it can be a means to an end, you know, I personally had some experiences with mild depression, um, in particular, probably 13 odd years ago now. And in retrospect, once I got through that period in my life, I was like, oh, what a what a gift it really did turn out to be, because I don't think I would have made such dramatic changes in my life had it not been for something literally every day being like, hey, Dave, you're miserable. Hey, Dave, like life sucks. Hey, Dave, you're also like 23 and privileged and shouldn't feel this way just because, you know, like life is short. Um, And so that's what I'm hearing you say, that maybe uh, the great resignation is is kind of like uh, catalyzing a lot of these questions, doubts, or bringing enough awareness to light for people that they may be saying, you know what? I don't deserve to be underpaid. I don't deserve to be overworked. I don't deserve to, um, you know, to, to experience time theft from my employer, whatever the case may be that's causing this, you know, migration of people from one job to the other, um, which I, I think is going to be really interesting to see in hindsight. And maybe that'll be in, in a future book that you write about. Oh yeah. No. And when you said that, I have thought this many times about my relationship with food, my really, really fraught, miserable, dysfunctional relationship with food. I have thought so many times, I wish I could go back and do it all over again and never have experienced that at all. But then I realized that I would not be who I am today. I would not have the career that I have, you know, so much would not have happened. I have no idea who I would be. Maybe I would be way better (laughs) and further along, but really what it, what I feel like is it, it, it was, it was a terrible experience, but it was a gift in so many ways because I have an understanding about things that if my life had been a breeze and nothing had been difficult for me, I might have a very shallow understanding of, of certain parts of life, or I may, you know, never have had to figure certain things out. You know, there, there's, or I may not have understood people who have had similar experiences. I think that's huge too, um, is to be able to relate to people and their own struggles. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do subscribe to the maybe, uh, polarizing belief that usually very often there is a gift in the, in the difficult times and in the difficult experiences. Yeah, I, re- I really like, I really appreciate Caroline you saying that the 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 journey that you've been through has given you the perspective to be able to like un- better understand, empathize, relate to, hold compassion for the people who may you know still be in an expression of the journey that you've already been on too. And we're all, of course, we're all on our own healing journeys in our own way. And it's you know nothing can really teach you to care for people like learning that you need to care for yourself in a lot of ways. Um, and 
which is ironic because a big part portion of uh, Tired as Fuck is about this pressure to constantly be improving. And so there's there's a this is a very deeply nuanced conversation. There's no quick answers here. I think like we just need to say that because like obviously this is life. Um, but there is no like perfect diet for anybody. There is no uh, perfect self-help recipe to to you know cure all your woes. And I'm really interested as I mentioned a moment ago that this pressure to constantly self-improve and and be the best version of yourself um, was another kind of like yeah. aha moment for you in recognizing how tired and how burnt out you are. Tell me a little bit about how you've observed busyness as a culture in especially like modern America. I think we could probably say like, you know, uh, the Western world or Western industrial world, uh, the capitalist world, like so forth. But busyness as a culture, how do you how, how have you seen this like obsession with being busy all the time harm us and perpetuate exhaustion and burnout like writ large? Yeah, you know, I think this is one of the things that was very interesting for me to go from healing my relationship with food to trying to healing heal my relationship with busyness and obsession with productivity. Um, and I never would have identified, I never would have said to you, hi, I'm Caroline and I am obsessed with productivity. Like I didn't see myself that way, but it, it was the way that I was operating on the subconscious level. But the parallel, I think is that busyness and constantly being productive is a distraction. It is a way to numb the pain, push it down, push it away, ignore it, not have to deal with it because it's very uncomfortable. And we live in a culture that doesn't teach us what it is and why it exists and how feeling it. It's not going to destroy us. It's going to allow us to just process it. We don't know that. We don't learn that. You know, um, we have to have a really good therapist or, you know, stumble upon the right teachers to even get that information in the first place um, in our culture. And yes, thankfully, we're starting to have more, you know, because of yoga, because of certain, you know, because of therapy, because of certain things that we're now kind of incorporating into our culture. Some people are able to have that information, but really the busyness thing is just like this obsession with diets. It is a distraction and it is so socially acceptable and rewarded that we will not realize the, the, the downsides, the dark sides. We don't, you know, if we're able to just kind of push through and get all this external validation and praise and money and, you know, the perfect body to put these things together until we hit that wall of, Oh my God, there's something, you know, I've, I've run my body into the ground or I've run my nervous system into the ground until we hit that point. We're not going to know that there's anything wrong with what we're doing because from the outside, it looks like we're doing everything right. But there, but in so many ways, you know, the, the thing that makes it so tricky is that it is the socially acceptable praised rewarded thing that we just assume is a good thing, a good way to operate. And it's this really, really effective drug, so to speak. It's this way to ignore everything and just focus on micromanaging control and being praised for it, you know? Yeah. So Caroline, there, 
I feel like there are elements of what we're talking about now with avoidance, numbing out, distraction that are, I, I think, this may be like an ethnocentric thing for me to say, but I think that they're kind of universal. I feel like there's a lot of like humanness because if we go through all like, you know, spiritual texts and religious texts and uh, if different philosophies and religions, there's always this element of like the human being struggling with their own mind and needing to learn to come into relationship with it. But I also know that there are cultures in the world today that aren't so tormented with their own selves. You know, there, there aren't there are cultures in the world today that aren't seeing rising levels of, you know, teenage suicide, um, depression, anxiety, uh, opioid use and addiction, substance use writ large, like the diet culture, which which feels like so uh, it feels as American as as apple pie in a lot of ways, like the new fad <laughs> diet, like here it is. What do you think if we are hiding or running from something or, or avoiding something as a society, do you have any sense of like what it is that we're so desperate to hide from? That's a great question. My first answer, I'm sure there's more to this answer, and I'm sure that it's more complicated than what I'm about to say, but my understanding and something that I kind of came to through trying to figure out my relationship with food and my relationship with my body was that we in our culture are very, very wrapped up in our minds. And we really, you know, we really kind of prioritize the mind and there's something wrong with the mind. The mind is a wonderful, wonderful tool. We need it. But that we are very, very, very disconnected from our bodies and it manifests in many different ways. But one of the big ways that it manifests is that we do not feel our emotions in real time, because we, as I kind of alluded to before, we don't understand them and we don't understand that they are not bad and that there's nothing wrong with, with feeling. Um, but what happens when we start to feel an emotion and then we kind of avoid feeling it. And I, the way I'm going to describe this is you could either look at it as symbolic or you could look at it as kind of woo woo and like talking about energy and, you know, embodying ourselves with our spirit. But we need to have our awareness, like our actual physical awareness of what it feels like in our bodies, in our bodies. We need to feel what it feels like to be alive and to have a body. And most of us do not. And all of our emotions and all of our intuition and wisdom that our bodies can give us for that matter are in our bodies. It's, it's, it's down here. It's not up here. And when we're in a state of constantly avoiding. So what I was going to say is when we feel that discomfort, we kind of pop up into our minds and we start thinking and we do not feel because we don't think it's either safe or we don't think it's um, good. We think it's weak or stupid or, um, you know, embarrassing. 
So what that leads to is a nervous system full of unprocessed energy and unprocessed emotions and unprocessed experiences, which is why we need to go to therapy. <laughs> uh, I appreciate you saying that as a future, therapy. as a future mental health counselor, I, I, I appreciate you uh, singing the praises of, of the profession. Obviously I don't need to be making a pitch because everybody needs and deserves good mental men, mental health care. There's not enough of it. There's a limited access, but I appreciate you shouting out therapy because I agree with you. It's something that we all need yeah, support a, with. And a, I, yeah, go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say, you know, like it is so important. And then, you know, I personally believe that the, the best therapists have an understanding of the somatic part of healing as well, because they are connected. They're not separate, you know? And I think that's another, so much of our culture and even medicine is so uh, focused and specialized on one part of our, of our body. Um, instead of seeing how all of these aspects work together, all of these aspects of our lives affect our bodies and our brains and all, all of this. I know I really don't think anything can be isolated really the way we, we try to isolate it. But to answer your question from before, what I think so many of us are running from is feeling <laughs> and feeling mm-hmm. the backlog of emotions and feel and, and processing the backlog, backlog of experiences that have been overwhelming and confusing and difficult and stressful and overwhelming. I mean, not to mention traumatic experiences that we haven't been able to process. Um, there's so much there for most of us that we don't even know is there that we don't even understand like the dynamic of why we feel so overwhelmed every time we do a breathing exercise that like sometimes calms us down and sometimes brings us up against the things that are, are ready to come up and be felt and processed. I think that so much of, of what we're running from, whether we realize it or not, is just ourselves and, and being in our bodies and feeling what it feels like to be a human. Um, and I think it leads to, uh, any number of, of addictions and, and kind of dysfunctional relationships with different aspects of our lives, be it our relationship with food, our relationship with work, our relationship with busyness, all of, any sort of addiction, any sort of substance abuse. I think that this is a, a big, big, big piece of, of all of that. That's really beautifully put, Carolyn. I, I I think it was a maybe an unfair question to ask you because I was basically like, "What's wrong with with everything?" <laughs> I'm sure there's more. I'm sure there are other other things, but I think that's a big piece. I really, especially culturally, because it's something that yeah. culturally you're not going to learn it unless you seek it out. The and the over association with mind, which is really prevalent. I mean, not just now, but for the last few hundred years since like Descartes, I think therefore I am. And ironically, the dawn of, of the modern era of, of science and medicine that has followed, which have given us so much and, and created so many advancements throughout society, civilization, for better and for worse, you know, industrialization for better and for worse. But there's, it's almost a real, it's almost its own religion now where like, it's the religion of mind, of thought, of ego. Mm-hmm. And I'm not mm-hmm. the type, uh, cause I've, I've drifted in and out of spiritual circles for a while. I'm not the type that believes like the ego is evil. We need to destroy the ego, dissolve the ego. Like 
our ego right. is what makes us human, right? It's personality. Yeah, it's not inherently bad. Exactly. Right. But but, but over like over the, identifying yeah. with the ego and, and and mind and only associating with mind is not fully human. It's like just accessing a, a little part of the of the human experience that we all get to have. Yes. Totally. Well, Caroline, before we wrap up here, uh, you've been very generous with your time and I just want to uh, honor and respect your, your schedule. Um, I'm curious about the, the nature of your writing, as I mentioned, is so personal uh, and vulnerable, but so full of like grace and, and, and humor, which makes it such a delight to read. I'm just curious, the, the writer in me wants to ask the writer in you, where do you fall on the spectrum these days of writing and sharing like so much about yourself in terms of like what do you ever feel an emotional hangover from what you share or has writing and telling your story felt more like cathartic and healing for you than, than like overexposing? That's such a good question. Um, and I can't say that I am like a master at this by any means, but there are a lot of things that I don't write about in real time. And I think that that's helpful. And in fact, I think a while ago, I, I listened to some Brene Brown podcast episode where she talked about, you know, if you share things publicly that you're still in the middle of healing from, it's, it's probably going to end up being stressful for you. There's going to be that emotional hangover. There's gonna, it's, you're kind of, um, exposing yourself to, to too much feedback while you're still in a kind of vulnerable state and that it's, it's a lot healthier to go through the healing process. And then when you're in a stronger state to be able to write about it. And I think that's what I do in a lot of ways. Um, I get to a point where I have processed enough of it that it doesn't, that I don't feel as, um, I don't feel as kind of vulnerable around certain things. Um, everything in tired as fuck, there's a lot in tired as fuck that I, you know, I thought like, Oh my God, am I, am I, am I sharing too much? Am I like, is this, is this a bad idea? And then I think like, there's a lot that I didn't say too. And I think that that's important as well. I think it's good to have things just to yourself or things that you're not ready to talk about that yet, that maybe in five, 10 years you will. Um, but I knew I, I had to really go through the kind of like the thought experiment of, am, am I really okay with everybody or anybody being able to know these things, uh, you know, these experiences that I had or these things that I thought or these things that I did. Um, and I had to be, I had to be okay with it or I had to make sure that everything in the book were just things that I really was okay with, with people knowing. Um, but also, you know, 10 years ago, I probably would not have been able to write about some of the things that were happening 10 years ago. I needed the time to, to kind of process and heal myself and then able be able to write about it from a, a healed place and a stronger place. Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. We'll be back soon with a fresh interview for you. In the meantime, if you're feeling generous and want to help support our show, please rate and review The New Story Is wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others to find the show. Until next time, I'm Dave Rosillo. This has been The New Story Is. Bye for now.
This episode of The New Story Is is brought to you by Writing the Personal, a three-week writing class hosted by me, Dave Ursillo, and The New Story Company. Join me for an unconventional and invigorating crash course into the art of personal narrative storytelling starting this June 7th. Personal narrative writing is considered to be one of the most in-demand and most popular forms of creative nonfiction writing today, and it's one that I've really come to love over my 13-plus years of publishing my writing on the internet. This June, you'll join me and a small creative cohort as we explore this art form for ourselves, develop our unique voices, build confidence as writers, and source inspiration from contemporary writers who are reinventing the story of what writing means in the modern day. Spaces are limited, so head on over to thenewstory.is slash WTP to register now. That's thenewstory.is slash WTP.